Was he trying to make a hint that he's going to go to sleep while I'm preaching? Is that, is that, keep an eye on that guy. It's good to be with you tonight. And uh, we were here this morning. Uh, our family, if, if you weren't here, I'll just tell you I, I'm from Calder Crooks, and, uh, but also from Canada before that. I uh, was a pastor there, and, and then we came over here to study and, and to serve. I'm still partway through my studies and seeking the Lord's direction on the next step, probably in Scotland. So we'd love your prayers for that. And I'm going to be with you, I think, for the next two nights after this. And we're just going to go through the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, during these evenings, God willing. So we looked at the beginning of Ephesians this morning, and I'd like to read with you tonight um, that same, that same passage again, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, and then we'll read a short reading from the book of Exodus, which will tie in, because we're looking at the theme of redemption. Ephesians is a, it was a, a, written as a letter, uh, and the writer was a, a church leader named Paul, who was converted out of a lifestyle of, of hating and persecuting Christians to one of pouring out his life to win people to Christ, a tremendous testimony. And this is a prayer, or this is a passage, um, a, really a, a praise note that he begins to write while he was in prison, Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined, according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of His glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. This is God's Word. And if you'll turn uh, to the beginning of your Bible, the second book, which is Exodus. Book of Exodus. And I'd like to read a few verses from chapter 6, which really lay the, the storyline and the, the picture which becomes later a metaphor for what redemption is. This is the historical beginning of the rescue of Israel out of Egypt. Exodus chapter 6. The Lord is speaking to Israel's first leader, Moses. 
verse 1 to 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. That yoke is a a yoke of slavery, that control governing their lives. Verse 8, And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, Israel's forefathers, I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. This is the word of God to us tonight. Shall we pray? Lord, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Redemption. When did you first feel your need for, for redemption? Or have you felt it? I think one of my earliest memories of feeling my need for redemption is in elementary school, I think around grade six or seven. And you know how kids can be mean to other kids. I was in a Christian school, but of course in Christian school, kids are still kids. Uh, whatever labels on the school and there was there was one girl in our class who we just decided to make the brunt of our insults and it reached the point where she was so hurt and she went to a teacher and and issued a real heartfelt complaint and the teacher called the perpetrators to account and I I was ashamed to be one of them and we were so well, I was so, anyways, um, humbled and, and, and broken that I had caused someone hurt, and I realized how much I needed forgiveness. And I, I think she forgave me, and uh, you know, the teacher also was very stern in, in lecturing us, but as we expressed contrition, he, he was gracious. I can remember getting a hug from him afterwards. Uh, and, and that event in my life pointed to the reality that I, I am a sinner who needs forgiven. And, and at that point, I, didn't yet, I hadn't yet tasted the reality of God's grace. I had I trusted it in my head, but I hadn't yet tasted it in my heart. And to know that you've been redeemed and forgiven is, I think it's the most important thing we can know. And everything comes from that. And so tonight, as, as we look at this text, we're going to look at this idea that we've, we've experienced redemption 
the, the word I've put there for it is that we've been purchased because redemption is, is a, a, a purchasing term. And we're going to look also at that we've, we've got a new perspective when we come to Christ and that God gives us his presence in Christ. Beginning of verse 6 in Ephesians 1, it talks about his grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have, and here's our, our word right now, redemption. We've been purchased through his blood, Christ's blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. And the key words we want to focus on here in verse 7 are that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption is a master theme in Scripture. But what does redemption mean? Uh, you might think of redeeming uh, points at Tesco to get, I don't know, a free jug of juice or something. You might, you might think a little, little more sophisticated in terms of movies with a redemptive theme. Some even have that word in it, the, the Shawshank Redemption. Uh, but what is redemption biblically? The main idea is what we read in Exodus. The people of Israel were enslaved. And God redeemed them. He set them free. He bought their freedom. He intervened. Often, explicitly, there's this idea of a price that's paid for freedom. Uh, this is a, a live issue even here in the UK. I was reading in the, in the news just this week a uh, story from a woman who'd been rescued out of uh, occupational therapy, came to this country on pretense of a job and, and could never leave. And there are actually thousands of people here in that situation for whom redemption is, is a very practical, uh, tangible need. And it's, it's a need that we all have spiritually as well. And the fundamental story that shapes Israel's identity from the mid-1500s BC is this story we read a little bit about. Uh, we call it the Exodus. If you are a, a children's movie uh, guru, it's called the Prince of Egypt, where that Moses comes and God does these miracles through him and, and they're rescued. This story has shaped Jewish culture, Christian culture, Western culture, and uh, it's the archetypal redemption story. And it's anticipating, pointing forward to redemption through Jesus Christ. It's a history, but it's pointing to a greater history through Jesus. Now look at what God said in, in Exodus 6. I might have it up here. Um, he says, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. He was going to rescue them from slavery. And so it, it comes up in the Exodus. It comes up in, in, in civil law as well, where um, if you were in poverty and you became, you might have sold yourself into slavery within your nation in order to deal with your debt. A relative, a kinsman redeemer, could redeem you. He could pay the money that you owe to buy your freedom. And this redemption picture continues through the Old Testament. And then later in Israel, when the nation had turned from God and he, he kicked them out of their land and they're exiled, God's not done. And he makes a promise and he draws on this language of redemption, which awakens in their minds the memories of being freed from Egypt and, and being freed from, from slavery in their own country through a kinsman redeemer. He uses this language because it's very evocative and it's pointing to 
what Jesus will do. But think with me for a minute within the language of, of Isaiah, of redemption. And he says there, Isaiah 44, 22, I have swept away your offenses or transgressions like a cloud. Your sins like the morning mist return to me, for I have redeemed you. And how will he do it? What will the price be? Will there be a price? Well, he says in, in Isaiah um, uh, 52, verses 2 to 3, he says, this is what the Lord says, you were sold for nothing, and without money you will be redeemed. Now, it doesn't say without cost. There's a word for that in Hebrew, but he doesn't use that word. It's literally without silver, you will be redeemed. And both of these texts are pressing towards Isaiah 53. And if you've read Isaiah, you know Isaiah 53 is, is the pinnacle of prophecy about the Messiah, where Christ's finished work on the cross, him dying, paying with his blood to redeem us, is, is depicted hundreds of years before it happened. And this language of redemption comes in there where it says he was pierced for our transgressions. The, the, the problem from which we needed to be redeemed and forgiven, he was pierced for that. He was crushed for our iniquities. And then if you can follow this, I, this is as deep as we're going to go. And then we're going to come up out of this submerged point, okay? I know this is a lot of material, but I want you to see this that all these dots are connected when we go to the New Testament in 1 Peter. The very same concepts are brought together to point to the price that was paid. The whole Old Testament story anticipated Jesus coming. The world points towards Christ because His sacrifice is the center of God's purpose and of history. And so... He says in, in 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter says, You know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. Like Isaiah 52, 3. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The lamb of Isaiah 53 is who redeemed us. Christ gave himself to redeem you. The story of the Bible points to this. And and. In life, we see redemption happening regularly. It, this reminds me of a story from April 2009. It, it took place off the coast of Somalia in Africa. And the U.S. flagged Maersk, Alabama container ship was attacked by Somali pirates. And uh, Reuters reported on this. They said the captain of the Maersk, Alabama, Richard Phillips, volunteered to go with the pirates in a, a lifeboat in exchange for the crew. Here's, here's this language of, of commerce, of, of payment. He offered his life in exchange for the crew. A father of one of the crew members said this, My son and our family will forever be indebted to Captain Phillips for his bravery, if not for his incredible personal sacrifice, this kidnapping, an act of terror, could have turned out much worse. What an incredibly courageous and, and generous decision he made to give himself in place of the crew. But Christ gave us something far more generous. Here in, in Ephesians, we see the word uh, grace wrapping around the word redemption. That It comes through God's grace. Grace is God's generosity. 
to people who deserve his wrath, that he pours out instead favor. Not to a loyal crew like Richard Phillips, but to, to his enemies, which is what all of us were before Christ changed our hearts. And it, it says literally that he's graced us with grace. And then there was a cost to it. It wasn't just generosity of, of, of kindness, but there was a price to that. Now, for Captain Phillips, he offered his life for the crew. But the Marines came in and rescued him. And he was off the hook. But Christ, when he offered his life as the lamb going to the slaughter, he was not rescued. He went all the way to the cross for us, God's beloved Son. And so as we celebrate the Lord's Supper tonight, we remember Jesus' words that it's the blood of the new covenant that was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, in church, sometimes there's people here who feel like God couldn't forgive you. He couldn't bless you. He couldn't be gracious to you. But the Bible says he can, and he has in Christ. Why? Not because of what you're worth or what you've achieved in yourself, but because Christ shed his blood to make it happen. It was enough. The price has been paid, and forgiveness is, is yours when you trust him. It's not for the worthy, it's for the unworthy, and that's why it's a gift. And if you feel unworthy tonight, can you please receive the gift? And often as Christians, we need to be reminded, that's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper, to be reminded it's a gift, and just to come with empty hands and receive. Now, sometimes we may also, on the other hand, feel like God owes me forgiveness. I'm pretty good. I, I do this, I do that. And you would be completely wrong as well. Because forgiveness is a gift. It's not something that you show up and say, well, God, you, you owe me. And God would be saying to you, stop trying to be worthy. Only Christ is worthy. And you just need to rest in him and what he did for you. And when we think about seeing Jesus one day, I'm sure when that crew got to meet their captain again, they must have let out a cheer. And I mean, Americans, demonstrative. I'm sure they did, right? Now think of how we're going to feel when we meet our captain and we see the holes in his hands and the, the place where the spear went through his side. Our rescuer, I'm sure, even the most reserved Scott is going to let out a cheer. What a day. So God's grace has purchased your freedom through Christ. Is that all? No. He's also given us perspective, and we read about that in verses 8 and 9. It says, with all wisdom and understanding. There's a perspective he's giving. Wisdom, understanding, perspective. He made known to us the mystery of his will. Now, can we pause for a minute and think about this word wisdom? Who do people... I want you to answer, actually, so go ahead. Tell me what pops in your mind. Who are people that are considered the wise in Western culture? Who are they? Uh, 
Can you just say that again? Professors. professors. All right. So the universities, professors. Yes. Anyone else? Older people. They're respected. They're experienced. Oh, who, who does our culture consider to be wise? I've actually had this problem before when I asked the question. People got really stuck, which is, which in a way, there's a certain healthy honesty there, isn't there? In some ways, our, our culture has given up on wisdom, hasn't it? We just want what's next. But who do we look to? We look to media. We look to what are people posting on Facebook? Who's popular? Who are people following? Who, who's got the most popularity? Um, movie stars and, and football players, they might not actually be wise, but we follow them as though they were in our culture, don't we? And but who do people look to for the answers? Where do we come from? Why are we here? How should we live? Well, it may be, it may be scientists who try to define things scientifically. It may be musicians, who, artists, singers who try to define things in terms of how they feel about the world. Filmmakers do the same. Hopefully we do look to the, to the older, to the mature. Now all of these represent various degrees of wisdom. But is that what God's talking about here when he made known to us wisdom? It's, it's talking about something else. It's not about education or smarts or experience. This is a wisdom you can't find any, anywhere simply human. It's the revelation of a mystery. When the Bible talks about mystery. It doesn't mean mystery like a whodunit, who killed the butler. It's talking about a secret that's been exposed. And that's what we have in the New Testament, the secret contained in the Old Testament of what Jesus would do in the gospel going to the nations has been exposed and it's been made available to us. The mystery, what God's doing in the world, where everything is going. And one of the gifts Christ gives us is perspective. And the perspective is in verse 10. Please look at that. It says, oh, hang on. I had some funny quotes there I forgot about. I'll show them to you here, okay? Here's, here's some of the world's wisdom. Richard Dawkins, do you know him? He's a, a very outspoken atheist, uh, a biologist, worked for a long time in Oxford. After sleeping through 100 million centuries, we've finally opened our eyes on a sumptuous planet, sparkly with color, bountiful with life. Within decades, we must close our eyes again. Isn't it a noble and enlightened way of spending our brief time in the sun to work at understanding the universe and how we have come to wake up in it? This is how I answer when I am asked, as I am surprisingly often, why I bother to get up in the mornings. So he just thinks there's no real answer. That's what explains everything. Um, here's one more answer to the world. Why would you want to be anything else if you're Mick Jagger? So that's kind of pop culture's maybe answer to meaning in life. But we're talking about a different kind of, of wisdom. And it's where everything's going. It says to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. These are kind of hard words in a way for us to understand. But if we get them, this is the perspective God wants us to go out of here and live on Monday morning with. What is the world about? Where is it going? He's bringing unity. 
this word bring unity, uh, it's only other occurrence in the New Testament is Romans 13.9. It talks about how all God's commands are summed up. That's the word. Summed up, brought to unity in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is a word if a public speaker was bringing all the threads of his thought together, he'd bring them into unity this way. Or if in, in math in the ancient world, they'd add up their sums from bottom to top, and at the top, they'd say, we, we brought them to unity, the process of getting that sum. That's the word, adding things up. Now, think about how this relates to Scottish people here in Airdrie today. There's people who say everything adds up to zero. The universe, life is really just meaningless. Richard Dawkins really thinks that. Others who think if you add everything up, it adds up to one. Life is all about one person, me. That's kind of the Mick Jagger quote for you. Uh, do what makes you happy. And there's people who, who, many, who say, I think life should add up. But it's not. Life is a mess. Life hurts. What's wrong with it? And, and all of, of these individuals have something in common that we're lacking the wisdom and the perspective that we have in Christ. Who can answer the ultimate questions of why we're here and what it's all about and where hope is? You know, it's only you. It's only Christians who have that answer. What good news you have to live with this week. This perspective changes everything. Everything in heaven and on earth is being brought together to find their unity, to find their purpose, to find their identity in the crucified, exalted, reigning and returning Christ. One day, all the, the Manchesters and the North Koreas of this world will be set to right. All science, art, architecture will unite to bring glory to Jesus. Every person will bow their knee to him. And this has implications on many, many levels. Uh, personally, with your own life, what does it add up to? What are you living for? Is it pointed to Christ? Uh, it can. This has implications for creation, how we steward the planet, if it's all here for him. Uh, it's not going to be discarded. It's going to be brought together for him. It has implications for your work. What does it mean if your work is going to be brought into the kingdom that Christ is going to build one day. Every job matters. This has implications for justice. If Christ is going to set all things to rights one day, then when you do something that promotes justice today, what are you doing? You're giving that person a taste of what the future kingdom of Christ is going to be like. And this has implications for evangelism. It reminds us there will be judgment for those who reject Christ, but salvation is available now, and he wants to draw all people to know him through salvation. Christ wants us to experience the blessing of being purchased by him, redeemed, and to taste and, see, and, and, and know that in a fresh way. He wants us to know this perspective. That's what he's given to us in Christ. And uh, in addition, he also has given us in Christ his presence, his presence. Have you heard of a, a guy named John Wesley? Back in, in the, I guess, the 1700s, England was in, in dire straits spiritually and, and morally and socially. And it might have gone the way of the French Revolution if not for the revival that God 
sovereignly brought about through John Wesley and the Methodist Church. Incredible, incredible history. And here's something that he said, though. All the stories he would have had of seeing thousands of people saved and churches started and a nation being transformed. You know what he said? The best of all is God is with us. The best of all is God is with us. The blessing of his presence. Verse 13 and 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, his presence, God with us, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. What's the key idea here? When you believed, you were marked with a seal. What's a seal? Maybe if you work in a legal industry or something or in a bank, you might use a seal sometimes. Uh, has anyone seen Lord of the Rings? In the first movie, there's, there's this um, scene where the, the ring of power is found in this hobbit's house. And Gandalf the Grey wants to safeguard it. And he, he holds out an envelope. And, and Bilbo drops the ring in the envelope. And he shuts it. And he puts a bit of wax from a candle on it and impresses it with a seal. And a seal has a meaning in the ancient world. It denotes ownership. It denotes authority. And it denotes authenticity. It's like a signature. And that's what you've been marked with, this mark that you are authentically a child of God. The Holy Spirit's presence testifies to you that you're a child of God and that you are owned by God. The Spirit's presence is a mark that you belong to Him. And that he is protecting you and watching over you. This is the, the presence of God. What does this mean? It means this. To be a Christian is not to have your name on a church membership roll. To be a Christian is to be born of the Spirit, where he has come to dwell in you. He has given you new life. Nothing can make you spiritually alive that you do or that a church does for you. The only thing is the Holy Spirit. And when you believe in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes permanently to dwell within you. It's amazing. It's a supernatural event when you become a Christian. And you are still you, but you are changed. And you can have new desires, a new, a new love, a new perspective. You can pray and it's not just dead words. There's communion with God. You can read the Bible or, or hear preaching, and God can speak to you through it personally. And sometimes you're, you're having your own personal quiet time with the Lord at home, reading your Bible or, or, or praying, or, or sometimes you're just driving the car or doing the dishes, and God's presence is there, and you feel this gratitude welling up because the Holy Spirit is making Jesus real to you. As well, we get to serve through the Spirit's power. We get to use our, our natural gifts, but the Spirit will enable us to use them in a way that brings fruit. And He'll give us spiritual gifts to do things we couldn't do without Him. And He'll prompt us and give us courage to be witnesses for Him, to tell other people what He's like. Now maybe you're here and you're, you're listening to that and you say, well, okay, I, I'm not sure I really know what what you're talking about. 
I don't know if I've really experienced the Holy Spirit's presence in my life. Do you see what he's called there in verse 14, or well, 13? You were marked in him with a seal. What's he called? The promised Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of promise. Now, this means when you trust in Christ, God's promised to send a spirit to you. So there's two main possibilities if you don't have any awareness of him. You may be unaware of his work, and you just need to begin to see it. Or you may still need to come to Christ. Now, if you've trusted Christ to save you from your sin and to be your Lord, he's done it. Don't doubt it. He's promised it, and he's good for it. But you're unaware. Well, that's okay. He's not, he's not called the, the Holy Spirit of feeling. He's the spirit of promise. Now, there are feelings at times, but not always. But he's promised to be there. I would encourage you to pray and ask, ask God to make his presence more real to you. To study what the Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit, you'll probably find you've been aware of him. You just didn't have a name for it. And maybe talk to a friend, talk to a mentor, and ask them, hey, help me. I'd like to become more aware of the Holy Spirit. And keep your focus on Jesus, not on yourself. It's when we look to Jesus that God's giving us more of his spirit. The other possibility, you might think you're a Christian because you're a churchgoer and you try to do good. That isn't what a Christian is. I'm thinking probably here on Sunday night, that might not be you at all. But you might know someone who needs to hear this. And a way to, to check where your heart really is, is your answer to the question, if you were to die tonight and stand before God, and God said, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you answer him? Why should I let you into heaven? What are you going to say to God? If you're starting to make a list of things that you've done right, good things, kind things, religious things, that would suggest you are mistaken in what it means to be a Christian. Because the only answer I could give or you could give would be, you shouldn't let me in, but Jesus paid for my sin. He purchased me, and I'm trusting him. And you said that that was enough. That's the only answer. And if you want to experience that assurance that you belong to him and begin to know his presence, trust him. Trust not yourself. Trust him. Do it tonight. And he will come. And he's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. When you go to buy maybe a piece of furniture at the store, and unless you want a payment plan that goes on until you have grandkids who will take it over for you, uh, you, you, you place a deposit and you say, I'll come back with the rest. Because when you give that deposit, it's a promise that the rest is coming. That's what the Holy Spirit is in your life. Here on earth, we get a deposit. And it's a promise that all the overwhelming glories and gifts and joys of heaven are definitely coming to you. And as we share in the Lord's Supper, as we celebrate Jesus' body and his blood, we are opening our hearts afresh to taste who Jesus is. And the Holy Spirit is going to minister that to us. And as he does... It's a foreshadowing of the joy that we will have in God's presence when we see him face to face. Please remember this week three things that God has given you in Christ. 
that He has purchased you. You've been redeemed. You're precious to Him and He paid with His own blood. And remember this week the, the perspective that He's given you, that your life has got a, a direction and a purpose and the whole world does. Remember that when things are coming apart. And remember that the best of all is God is with us. Remember His presence and thank Him for it. We're going to pray together and I think we're going to sing and we're going to take communion together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it's alive and powerful. May everything that was from You that was useful to us just go deep, deep, deep into our hearts tonight. May anything that was just the guy up here talking drift from our minds. But may the, the words You wanted us to hear shape and transform us and give us joy, give us freedom, give us courage, give us unity to go and to live with you and in you and for you. In Jesus' name, amen.